In the National Geographic original series for Disney+, Plus, The World According to Jeff Goldblum, the curious host pulls on the thread of deceptively familiar objects to unravel a world of astonishing connections, fascinating science, and history. From sneakers, ice cream, coffee, and cosmetics, to everything in between, Jeff uncovers how even the smallest things have incredible, sometimes whimsical backstories. Through the prism of Jeff's curious and witty mind, nothing is as it seems. The World According to Jeff Goldblum is for your consideration for outstanding hosted nonfiction series or special and all other eligible categories. For more information, visit natgeotv.com FYC. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real welcome one and all to a special interview episode of be real this is chance solemn pfeiffer i am beyond jazzed on this day to be speaking with rob McElhenney. He is the creator of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which just finished its record-breaking 14th season last fall. But of course, you probably know him just as well or better for playing the character of Mac for 14 years. Mac is a Paddy's Pub co-owner who's evolved from a wannabe motorcycle badass in a cutoff t-shirt to a religious zealot in a cutoff t-shirt to a body dysmorphic codependent in his cutoff t-shirt, to an absolutely shredded, closeted gay man in a cutoff t-shirt, to a finally, mercifully out Patty's Pub co-owner in his cutoff t-shirt. I should say in the interview to follow, McElhaney is quick to point out that though Mac received an uncharacteristically beautiful and earnest moment of coming out at the end of season 13, he feels that the future Mac should be as off-putting as ever. It is still 14 years in, a show about terrible terrible people. So yeah, we talk a good bit of Sunny on this interview. It's one of my favorite TV shows, and it's been the center of Rob's professional life these many years. But our more immediate hook is Rob's new Apple TV Plus comedy, Mythic Quest Raven's Banquet. McElhaney created this show alongside Charlie Day and Megan Gans. On it, he plays Ion, the megalomaniacal director of a video gaming empire. The game in question being the fictional online role-playing phenomenon, Mythic Quest. If Ion has anything in common with Mac, let's go with he's in phenomenal shape. He likes to think on his feet while miming combat. And the people he works with uh, don't like him very much. On Mythic Quest, the gang includes a lead engineer at the end of a rope. That's Poppy, played by Charlotte Nikdow. A drunken sci-fi novelist called C.W., who is very unfit for a 2020 workplace, played by Oscar winner F. Murray Abraham. There's the game's sociopathic monetization director, Brad, played by Community's Danny Pudi. There's the off-undermined producer, David, who is played by David Hornsby, you'd know as Rickety Cricket from Sunny. And then I have to shout out a mind-blowingly funny performance from new covener, newcomer Jesse Ennis, who's a personal assistant at the company, prone to idolatry and some very intense bullying. The other context you need for this episode is that after wrapping its first season in February, Mythic Quest returned with a quarantine episode in late May. And the look of that episode is that it's made to appear entirely on Zoom or Skype or sometime, some type of video conferencing software. And that's to say the Mythic Quest staff is also in quarantine, leading to some pretty topical comedy 
on the lack of professionalism that comes with remote working and some of the pretty real loneliness that can come from losing all your physical human lifelines. To hear McElhaney tell it, the episode was an unprecedented challenge to make, and it is, if you'll allow me an opinion, as funny as the rest of a show that is very funny at times, and also strikingly creative when it comes to pushing the boundaries of the workplace sitcom. In the interview to follow, I talk with McElhaney about making television where no one can leave their houses, times he felt that Sonny needed to atone for past sins, a character he based on an alternate reality George R.R. R. Martin, and finally, McElhaney's general advice for never giving up the, quote, beating heart of your artistic creation. This show is part of the Playlist Podcast Network, which includes wonderful programs like The Fourth Wall, The Discourse, Indie Beat, The Deep Focus Podcast, and we'd love you to subscribe and rate the feed wherever you get your shows, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever. All right. Here's Rob McElhenney. Please be wearing a shirt. Please be wearing a shirt. Oh, hey, Dave. What are you doing in a hot tub? I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I'm in a hot tub. Obviously, the quarantine has been tough on everyone. I don't know what I pressed, but uh, I'm here. You look awful. You lose! You're a cashed-up bogan. Poppy is being mean in Australian. Is the meeting almost over? The meeting hasn't even started. Rob, how's it going? It's going okay. How are you? I'm doing all right. I've really been looking forward to to speaking with you, man. Have you been uh, Have you been holding up of late? Well, um, you know, it's been uh, it's been an interesting time to be alive mm-hmm. um, for everybody. And you know, one one thing that uh, is obviously positive that that's going to come out of all of it is that we're all going through it together in some way, shape, or form. And Clearly, clearly, there are a lot of people out there that are struggling a lot more than others, and um, and and those are the things that we're going to be wrestling with for hopefully for a very long time and figuring it out together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as keeping your sanity in just the quarantine before the last week, I saw you've been playing some guitar and some woodworking on your Instagram. Um, have you been doing? Any, have you been writing a new season or anything? Any writing in your world? A tremendous amount of writing. We did a tremendous amount of writing and, and production on the quarantine episode of Mythic Quest um, that we released a couple weeks ago. And um, and then aside from that, we will we have been uh, continue, continually rewriting season two of Mythic Quest because we were in the middle of production on the first episode when we went down. And obviously the world has changed dramatically in the last um, three months. So we want the show to reflect that. So... The quarantine episode itself is a fascinating just sign of the times. Can you tell me about the, the genesis of that episode? Yes. Well, really, the um, the original thought and the genesis was to just get the crew working, uh, get them paid for a few weeks. How could we do that? We, we knew we weren't able to come back and we won't be able to come back for quite some time. Um, how can we get everybody in, in, on our crew, a couple hundred people, just working for a few weeks? So as we talked about it a little bit more, we realized, wow, we could we could tell a story of, of our particular show from quarantine, and and if we were going to do it, we wanted to make sure that it felt like a premium episode of the show, and that you could watch it three or four years from now, and we wouldn't have to apologize for the quality of it, and that the interface uh, with, that we were using in which to tell the story was a creative choice and not just a limitation. You know, it occurred to me 
especially watching Poppy in this episode, that I had never seen any show, much less an office comedy, portray the weirdness and the struggle of working remotely. I know that's probably antithetical to what an office comedy is most of the time, but millions of people do it every day. How did this notion of um, of Poppy's very real struggle enter the writing equation for you? Well, we knew when we, when we wanted to, when we started talking about the episode and, and, and our approach to it, um, we wanted to make sure that we were being respectful of the situation. And and at, at the very least, we could bring 25 minutes of uh, levity and, and comedy to people's lives, um, but that at best, we could maybe make people feel a little less alone and a little bit more optimistic about the future, um, which is why we, you know, we, we led with comedy forward, and then we got into uh, mental health, uh, the mental health aspect of all of this, and then we wanted to end in triumph, which is what that final sequence was so that we could leave people feeling um, pretty good uh, having watched the episode. Was there anything, Rob, in the writing of the production of the episode where you guys were running with something and then realized how difficult it would be to do, given the limitations of, you know, everybody being apart? Was there any idea where you were like, you know, you're running with it, and it's like, oh, wait, the quarantine. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the entire time, you, you really got such a tremendous, it's not, it's not that we didn't um, have respect for each other's positions, of course we do, but it's, it's never more stark and apparent uh, how important each individual department is when, uh, when all of a sudden they're not there in the room helping you achieve what you're trying to achieve. So all of a sudden, um, you're, as we're asking the actors to work with all of these departments to make their apartments look like the character's apartment, so that means set deck. That means where's your best lighting? So now all of a sudden they're working with the DP, how to operate the cameras, also DP, how to pick up the best audio, what are the best rooms for audio, how to do your own hair and makeup, um, props, all of these types of things um, that we had each department communicating directly with the actors, and then in doing so we're able to create um, what wound up still continued to be a collaborative experience, except everybody's doing it from the comfort or discomfort of their own home. Was the quarantine episode our first even implication that CW has a home? <laughs> that's, fair. That's, a fair, that's a fair question. I, I don't know that it's 100% clear that he is at home. He claims he seems to be in a basement of some sort. That's true. It could be the basement of the office. I get to find out. Um, I guess I might as well ask now. I mean, I, I was fully unprepared for the glory of, of F. Murray Abraham uh, being on the show and delivering lines the way he does. When he said, we shall silence Pootie, I kind of lost it. Um, is that character modeled after anyone, Rob? Is, is, is the sort of like idiosyncratic old paperback author like an actual archetype at all in this industry? No. No, no, but we wanted to, um, just over the years, because um, I, uh, I'm really good friends with um, Dan and David from Game of Thrones, um, I've, I have had uh, a number of occasions where I've got to spend time talking to George R. R. Martin. Um, he's just like, like a really fascinating guy, and, and obviously like a very sweet man, 
and really generous with his time and supremely gifted. And I, and he's just like such a fascinating guy. So anytime I would find myself talking to him, I was thinking like, what would, what would have happened if somebody like George took a nosedive because of the excesses of his success sometime in the late 70s or early 80s <laughs> and never really recovered from that? And then what would happen if there was a video game company that, you know, whose head, that would be my character, Ian, was such a big fan of this author, he decided to, to, to bring him into uh, in to help write the episode, write, write the video game uh, with, with and for him. Um, what would that kind of character be? So it's not really based on George, but it's sort of an amalgam of the, the sci-fi fantasy writers of, of, of the 60s, 70s, and 80s um, having fallen on hard times and now found themselves in the game it somehow also like really well synthesizes the weirdness of like how uh, marginalized like genre fiction was at that time and like how strange it looks when it becomes the monoculture because this man <laughs> comes with it somehow. Yeah, I mean, it's, well, it's just very specific. And, and that's the beauty of bringing an actor like F. Murray Abraham in because, because he's always going to elevate whatever you put down on the page. So... So he brings his own um, idiosyncrasies to the performance that you make it feel like a real human being while also being absolutely absurd and incredibly funny. So watching the the quarantine episode, I I couldn't help but kind of like think back to when you first went on the air with Sonny and it was 2005, right? Yeah. And it's two presidents ago and I... I you, multiple eras of TV have come and gone depending which like critic or thinker you talk to and John Landgraf had barely started at at FX and I wonder like making a Zoom style episode of your television show sort of a la carte for a streaming service do you have moments these days of disbelief or joy or both of of being like this is this is television now <laughs> Well I definitely have moments of joy and disbelief that I'm in the position that I'm in. Um, and I, I say this in all sincerity, I still, to this day, when I walk onto a soundstage, I get excited. Like, I get goosebumps. I get, I walk onto those lots, and I, I respect the history that's there. I respect the, the, the privilege that I have to be there. And, and I try to make sure that I honor that by, by putting my best um, effort into making things that people will enjoy um, because I don't take it for granted because I know um, it'll go away. It goes away for everybody and those opportunities go away. So I need to make sure that I take full advantage of, of every moment that I have while, while, I, while I get to make these shows. Speaking of, of, of not taking things for granted, this plays into something I want to ask. I mean, Sonny had such a snowballing um, process over the course of, those, those 14 years. And I wonder when you start a brand new project like this, do you feel a sense of patience of like, I've been through this before. I know that it does not have to happen all at once. We have a little runway or can you never assume that that's true? Well, I, I, one of the things that we've always done with Sunny that I want to continue to do for the rest of my life with anything I work on is we don't take any episodes off ever. We never say, well, 
this one's not great, but let's just do it anyway because we got to fill it with something. Um, that doesn't mean every episode's great. Of, of course it, it isn't. It, we, we, it, it's just that we take a swing every time, and we try to take a big swing every time. And that means that, you know, we play with the form, we mess with tone, we uh, certainly approach difficult um, conversations and subjects, and we don't always get it right. Um, and if you go through the canon of Sunny and you look back at some of the things we've done over the years, I look back and I say, hmm, like, I, I, knowing what I know now, I would not have handled it that way. And so when we find those, we retroactively try to, to ameliorate those things. Um, and where we can't, we recognize that that was where we were at the time. And we weren't, there was never any malice, but that doesn't mean that there's an excuse for doing something that was ignorantly uh, hurtful. Now, that also isn't to say that we don't recognize when we are trying to be, I don't want to say offensive, but at least just trying to push the boundaries of what is uh, acceptable to talk about in in, in, in dialogue over a television program. Uh, however, we never go into it thinking, well, how can we hurt somebody? Or how can we, how can we ridicule somebody or humiliate somebody or certain, certainly any, any group in particular? Um, our goal is to try to make something that satirizes uh, Western culture, really, more than anything else. And because of that, we're going to find ourselves in sticky situations. But I think the audience recognizes that in the aggregate, we're trying to do the right thing from, from a socially responsible uh, perspective. Can I have, can you give an example of a, an amelioration episode that you sure. did retroactively? Sure. So, so early in, I think, in season one, we, had, we have a, a transgender character. And if you've noticed that in those episodes, if you go back and watch any episode that Carmen... Um, is in, we, we've always went, we always really endeavored to make sure that the, the joke was never that this was a transgender person and that it was very clear that we were ignorant, the characters were ignorant and transphobic and homophobic and all of those things. But in the, at, the, at the end of the day, the celebration was not in our transphobia, was in the fact that we were such morons that we kept... Um, that we kept hurting ourselves with our own ignorance and fear, right? And, and Carmen winds up being the hero of most of those episodes. But the thing that, that is pretty stark when you watch it now is that we called her what I've come to know over the years as, as a slur. And at the time, um, I didn't realize or we didn't realize it was a slur. Now, maybe that was because we were, we were willfully ignorant, Maybe it's because we um, just didn't educate ourselves, and there's no excuse for that, but it's what happened, and I'm not apologizing um, for, for it. I mean, we were 25 years old, and we were doing our best. However, our best wasn't good So um, over the years, we retroactively adjusted that to where we were. Uh, we reached out to the community and said, hey, we recognize this, um, and we want to make sure we're not pandering. And just doing something because this is what's like PC now. We really want to figure out what's the best way to communicate what we're trying to communicate. Um, what's the best term that we can use um, that will that will help you and help us understand how to communicate um, the the message that we're trying to communicate, which is very I mean almost never, very rarely if not ever, 
um, an attack on any one particular group. We subsequently then changed the term by which we by which we refer to karma. Right, right. Uh, but I can't go back and like like go back and whitewash what happened, right? Like like the one answer would be, well, you just you edit those episodes, or you just you just remove those episodes from the canon. And I I feel like that's disingenuous. To me, that's pandering as well, because then it doesn't allow to allow for anyone to see that there was an evolution and that it, it pretends like it didn't exist, but it did exist. And there's no room for growth if you don't recognize that you're starting from a place where you need to grow. Sure. And if you if it is, as you say, satirizing Western culture, Western culture changed between 2005 and 2020. Um, let me jump back to Mythic Quest. Uh, I really want to ask you about the Dark Quiet Death episode, which you directed and your sister wrote. Is that right? For people who haven't seen it, I it comes in the middle of the season. It's almost a short film, um, out of the timeline, out of the setting of the of the office that Ian and Poppy are in. It stars Jake Johnson and Kristen Malati um, as Doc and Beans, and they're making this um, sort of idealistic but weird game in the '90s. And you sort of slowly see them uh, hit checkpoints in their professional and personal relationship where they you know, stand by their philosophies or give it up. And it's just so much different than the rest of the show. Where did that episode come from, Rob? Well, we wanted to keep stretching and trying new things. Uh, and, you know, it's also a function of just having zero limitations uh, as far as the, the, the stories we can, we can tell. Or not, I shouldn't say zero. We have less limitations than we've had in the past. I mean, there was a time for, I mean, the vast majority of studies, probably 13 years, 12, 12 seasons, where we had to deliver every episode at an exact length, uh, time. So it would be 20, in the beginning it was 2215, then it went down to 1951. And I mean, every single episode had to be delivered 1951 to the second. And with specific act breaks, and that's just the way that, that's just the way television has been for, you know, 50 years, 60 years. But, but now all of a sudden that's changed. And we have episodes of Mythicus that are 22 minutes and some that are 36. And just that in and of itself allows us to tell stories in a different way. And I thought, well, well let's, just, let, let's not limit ourselves there. Like, let's just continue to stretch. How can we, what, what would happen if we just changed the tone of the entire show for one episode? Would people go along for that ride? But we don't want to do it at the stunt. We want to make sure that it feels like there's a reason for it to exist. So we thought, would there be a way in which we can put essentially a dramatic episode in the middle of a season of what is very clearly a comedy first show and get people to jump into it and engage with it and then yet be able to return back to the comedy forward series and have it feel like there's a, like there's a thematic like emotional resonance that's now placed there that's just permeating through the second half of the season and then culminates in the final episode and really the final moment of the final episode um, where we realize that we're watching the same story. So one was a dramatic interpretation, one was a comedic interpretation, but it's the same story. It's two people who are in a relationship. One happens to be romantic, one happens to be platonic, but they have created something together and that, that thing that they've created together uh, on its surface is a video game. But seriously, who gives a fuck about video games? What we care about <laughs> are our relationships with each other as human beings. And the people that came before them destroyed it. 
they created a cancer um, and destroyed that relationship. And would the characters who are at the center of our main uh, conflict and relationship, would they do the same? Or would they find ways in which they could work together and, and continue to create and collaborate and sacrifice and ultimately stay together for the sake of this thing that they're fostering? Yeah, my experience pre-Dark Quiet Death was in really enjoying Ian's outsized presence in the office, but never really thinking that I should respect his ideas or what they meant. And the implication of Dark Quiet Death going forward was that I should think about that. Was that in part the intention? Well, yeah, one of the things that we wanted to make sure of, um, and, I, and I hope this, this came through, and I, I think it seems to have done so, is that at one point, um, Jake's character, Doc, says to Bean that, because she's, she's, she's immobile in her, in her um, creative vision. She's just, she just will not give in on anything. And he keeps having to work her into giving in. And, uh, and, and what I've noticed is it, that when, someone, when someone's thing is destroyed, Right, and I see a lot happen all the time when people say, "Oh, the studio wrecked my show," and that's that's impossible. The studio can't wreck your show. You 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 are the only one that can wreck your show. And and yes, some people are in different positions of privilege and power to stop things from happening. I get that, but still, at the end of the day, you are the one making the decisions to corrupt whatever it is that is your creative. Now, unless someone comes in and takes it from you and says, you're fired, now we're doing this, okay, you have no control over that. But if you're there and you're still the steward of it and the, the studio gives you notes that you don't agree with it, you implement them, even though it, it, it puts a, a, a sword through the, through the beating heart of your creation, that's on you. That is on you. And I just see people using that as an excuse. And I just thought, well, let's, let's see a relationship where if – because the opposite is true as well, which is if you don't collaborate with other people or at least allow to recognize that you are not just the most important part of this. There is another side of it. There's a business sense side of it that we have to find the perfect confluence of art and commerce. Otherwise, the thing doesn't exist in the first place. So at one point, Doc says to her, if it wasn't for me, this would have never left your dream journal. And he's dead right. So they need each other. Mm -hmm. The art needs the commerce, and the commerce needs the art. Otherwise, you're just painting in your room, and no one ever sees it. So how do we get it out to the world? Well, it's a constant compromise. But the stewards of that creation have to recognize when you're giving up the beating heart. And that's where they, got, that's where they lost it, that they gave up the beating heart. And ultimately, he, you could call him the villain, but you also have to understand that Without him, it doesn't exist either. And that's what collaboration is. This is a slightly different comparison, but I remember you talking on a podcast about when you were very young writing a movie script and then uh, Paul Schrader was going to direct it, right? Yes. Um, and I remember you saying in the interview, like there were a lot of moments during that where you, you know, you kind of felt like it was out of control or you felt like you were losing it, but you still maintained a certain responsibility of like, I said yes to the process. Like I was trying to take the notes that Paul Schrader gave me. Is that a, is that sort of a fair inflection point in your own life to what these two are going through? Yes. I mean, it, it was a constant and, and 
and this this the, the thing about writing and 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 directing and producing versus acting, which is really tricky, is that when you're writing something, you are in control of the entire process because you're the one that's creating it. Um, and so that doesn't mean that you're the only one you should listen to. You should absolutely be listening to other people. But at a certain point, if it no longer reflects what you're trying to do, you have a choice to make, which is I'm going to continue working on this because I need the money or I need the gig or whatever, which is totally valid and fair. And But you have to recognize that now you're an employee. And if the thing turns out not to be what you wanted it to be, well, that's, that's on you. So you either fight back and, and fight for what you want, and then still the, the boss who's paying you gets their choice, which is, nope, I'm keeping you on, and I agree with what you're saying, and I appreciate the pushback, and you win. Or they say, you're fired. But either way, you have to be ready for those kinds of things because those they, have, they still happen to me to this day. I mean, constantly. That's, that's the job. Because, and you hope, you, you want it to be that. Because otherwise, you, you just, if you're not, if you are the autocrat and you're in charge and you just dictate to everybody the way it's going to be, you, first of all, you have no personal growth. You have no professional growth. You're not learning anything new. And you're just stale. I mean, at worst, you just, you become a dinosaur that nobody gives a shit about. I mean, I, I, that's at best. At worst, you've become an immobile, um, you know, hardcore, staunch uh, person who just refuses to learn or grow anything, and I'm just never going to let that happen. Let me change gears for a second. Um, it occurred to me reading interviews with you from both recently and, and a long time ago that um, for the better part of a, like a decade now, you've been answering a lot of questions about your body. Does that ever get unsettling or do you feel like that's what I signed up for given how I foregrounded these physical transformations of Mac? Well, no, I, I, I don't find it unsettling. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's pretty demonstrative of, of the way that um, we all think about uh, our physical appearance as a culture. And, and, and that's why we did it in the first place. Um, it really truly is fascinating that the vast majority of questions I get about both Vincent and Sonny um, are about the weight gain and then also getting into shape. And I, well, I think, A, it's just because people are fascinated with body changes, like dramatic body changes. Um, but beyond that, I think it's just something that we're grappling with all day, every day. And it's something that we can all share in terms of our experience with it. And personally, I just find the subject fascinating. But I just find masculinity fascinating, so that's, that's what I'm just like looking to explore mostly. Sure, sure. So one of my favorite kind of recurring late-season sunny bits is when some minor character kind of innocently runs across the gang and just doesn't realize that they have this history and this vocabulary and the gang gets very easily frustrated that this person whether it's like the waiter or the thundergun focus group person or the arbitrator basically just hasn't been watching the show that is their lives like doesn't understand um just like the way they talk to each other and the way that they relate um was there some sort of tipping point for you guys where you realized that you know audience familiarity with these people mixed with a new character's lack thereof could be just like really hysterical fuel for the show? Yeah, well, one of the things that we, we realized was always just fun to write um, and just seems 
like it makes sense within the universe of Sonny is that these people are such in, insane sociopath narcissists that they would leave a wake of destruction and, and there would be people in that wake that, and they would have like not only zero regard for how those people uh, turned out, but also like even recognizing that they, there's any culpability in it. So like Ricky Cricket is like the best example where we took this person who started off as, as a, as an upstanding member of the, of the, uh, of the community and was a Catholic priest. And we had basically devolved him into <laughs> a, like a, like a subhuman, like new species of animal. And, and, and yet the, the characters themselves have no idea that they're like directly responsible for them. Um, we just feel like it's a great metaphor for the show in and of itself. Very true. Very true. Um, a new species of animal. Oh my God. Uh, oh, by the way, I I figured I saw some interview where it was like, how long until like Dave, they do something crazy to David's face on Mythic Quest and in the quarantine episode it happened. So <laughs> the temptation was too strong, I guess. Look, David loves humiliating himself. Like he's he's in the writers' room, so he's pitching it. We're like, all right, want to shave your eyebrow? Great, shave your eyebrow. Whatever. Do it. Very last thing. Uh, the end of season 13 for Mac is so cathartic and heartfelt. I know you've talked about uh, working on that dance sequence and what you wanted to accomplish with it. Um, was there any part of you after that that was like, where the hell do we take this character individually now? Um, well, no, not necessarily. I mean, the way that we look at it is each season we start anew. And I, I knew that I, we were... We made it a concerted effort to make sure that Mac was just as much of a moron, just as much of an asshole, just as much of a terrible person, sociopath, a narcissist as he's always been, so that we didn't change the character at all. Because if we really are talking about um, in- inclusion and normalcy and, and, and normalizing, um, you know, groups of people and, and who human beings are, then if we change Mac as a character because he all of a sudden came out of the closet, that that would actually work in cross-purposes with what we were trying to say. Um, and what we noticed was we kind of doubled down and made Mac even, even maybe a little bit even more of an annoying <laughs> asshole. And the LGBTQ community, uh, from, from my vantage point and the response that I got, seem to really uh, respond well to that and appreciate it because why, of course like why can't they be assholes too that's all a part of the human condition like we're all in this together and that's a huge part for a very important part for us is normalizing um the broad spectrum of who human beings are and can be there it is um well rob it was such a pleasure to to talk to you i uh i really look forward to more of of both shows man i hope you're taking care Thank you, and I appreciate all the work you clearly put into this, and I think the questions were awesome and insightful, and thank, I appreciate it. Thanks for the kind words. You you take care. I rest my case. Well, that got me. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Frank, do you want me to... Put me on. Yeah, all right. What? Well, we're going on the fence. I mean, that's a shadow of a doubt. You actually don't believe in evolution anymore? I don't know. He created a reasonable doubt. He makes you sound like a stupid uh, science bitch.